0: The offshore energy sector is seeing a pace of change unknown since the discovery of North Sea gas in the 1960s or the oil crisis in the 1970s.
1: The discoveries in the North Sea led to the rapid development of offshore fossil fuel extraction. But even at its peak, this saw only scores of rigs operating at once. As the world moves towards renewables, these numbers will be dwarfed by the number of offshore wind turbines. With the fossil fuel sector required hundreds of rigs, the renewable sector will require thousands of turbines.
0: Each of these must be secured either with foundations for individual turbines or with anchors for floating arrays.
1: In 2021, there was 14.6 gigawatts of installed capacity in the European Union. By 2030, that is set to increase by at least 25 times.
0: But where will all of these new wind turbines and other renewables like wave generators go?
1: We have already picked a great deal of the low-hanging fruit. Where turbines can be built with relative ease, they have been built or soon will be.
0: New developments will often be further offshore in deeper water in an area without consistent seabed conditions.
2: Some of the earliest turbines were built on breakwaters, sort of close to ports and harbours and in existing infrastructure. And all the early sites have really been on the sort of continental shelf, so starting in um, sort of you know, 20, 30 metres of water. And today we're, we're now up to sort of 60, 70 metres of water. And we're now looking at much, much deeper locations for floating wind.
1: Over the next 10 years, we will see a fundamental shift in how power is generated. Manufacturers are building wind turbines that push the limits of fabrication yards, of docks and of lift vessels. Developers are scouring the planet for locations that can support installations of perhaps hundreds of multi-megawatt turbines
0: they need new ways of installing foundations
2: efficiently. It's a single piece of equipment, where it's fully assembled on deck, mounted in horizontal. And um, we we lift the drill with the crane, we place it on the foundation or the seabed template, and it's ready to go. The, the, minute, the, the minute that we um, touch down on the seabed, the, the drill's fully assembled, fully ready to operate,
0: they must work around hard limits on the capacity of the surveying industry.
3: And in today's environment, vessels that do these types of surveys are being booked uh, well in years in advance. So uh, that could have a significant impact on the, the timeline of, uh, of a developer's project. Uh, because the, these vessels are booked back to back to back.
0: And they must sort through and analyse some of the most detailed data sets ever created.
4: With some of these developments being, you know, 500 square kilometers across, that's a big spatial footprint of data. And then, and it's not even one time that that data is considered because we deal with, you know, four or five sensors across one footprint, one spatial footprint. So imagine we've got side scan, uh, magnetometer, bathymetry, backscatter, all compounded several times uh, to the centimeter scale. It's dealing with that many pixels rendering within. 10, 15 20 seconds it's a lot to um, uh, it's, it's a lot of complexity behind it that enables that technology
0: Hello and welcome to engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling
1: and I'm Rian Owen.
0: In this episode we've partnered with Fugro to look at how an exponential shift in wind turbine construction has pushed fundamental change in offshore surveying and construction techniques.
1: Wind turbines, whether on land or on sea, have pushed every limit of the engineering sector for the last 20 years. Not long ago, a big wind turbine on land would have a capacity in the hundreds of kilowatts. A big 2.5 or 3 megawatt turbine could only be built offshore.
0: Today, onshore turbines regularly push past the 3-megawatt mark. And much larger turbines are currently being built. They stand 100 metres tall and each blade can be as much as 80 metres long. And nacelles, the bit with the rotor where the blades attach, and the generating components can weigh into the hundreds of tonnes.
1: But these onshore turbines are tiny compared to their offshore counterparts. These can have double-digit megawatt capacities. Whole ports are dedicated to their handling. Concrete gravity bases are constructed in parallel, dozens at a time, using fleets of transporters and rail-mounted tower cranes. And they must be placed in vast installations around the world's coasts.
0: They must sit on stable foundations or be anchored securely to the seabed. And as Peter Richards, chief engineer with Fugro, who we heard in the introduction, explains, this
1: has become increasingly challenging. While the leap in turbine capacities has reduced the overall number of turbines that can be installed, it has seen them soar in size.
2: 20 years ago, when we were installing two megawatt turbines, there would be hundreds of thousands of turbines required. But if you think about the transition to bigger turbines and, and why we're installing bigger turbines, the power of a turbine is the square of the the diameter of the blades and that means that you have to mount the turbines higher up and by mounting them higher up offshore you get cleaner air so you don't get all the disturbances for the interaction of um, the airflow so it's less to do with a number of locations and more to do with um, bigger turbines and uh, we're already talking about by, by the end of the decade, uh, to turbines in the order of 10, 20 megawatts.
0: Each of these turbines weigh hundreds of tonnes, and they must be held perfectly upright 100 metres or more above the waves. And to achieve this, they require a firm foundation.
2: Offshore, there are three principal foundation types. Gravity foundations, which are basically big concrete weights, that support the tower structure and in the early days those were used in places like the Baltic, so very shallow shelter locations where you need a certain amount of ground preparation but there's no piling involved. And then the other two principal um, types of foundations are um, what's referred to as jacket foundations which is what, what you sort of um, what you see in all the sort of oil and gas installations so um, big lattice structures that are piled at the four corners and um, probably the the most prolific and common type of foundation for for um, wind farms over the last 20 years has been monopiles so in the early days those these are tubes single steel tubes driven into the seabed Um, 20 years ago though those were in the order of four meters diameter Um, Today, now, um, we're currently at 8, 9, 10 metres diameter. And by the end of the decade, the prediction is that um, these tubes will be sort of 12 metres and and bigger in diameter.
1: These monopiles can each weigh over 3,000 tonnes before the tower, nacelle and blades are attached. That's not an easy cargo to transport or load to lift.
2: There were sort of two requirements. There were requirements for the foundations, that were quite specific in terms of the size of these monopiles and um, the difficulty in terms of racking them horizontally and then lifting them into the vertical and placing them on the seabed. The visible part of the the wind turbine, so the tower sections, the nacelle and the blades. And those components are much lighter. So what you tend to see is the, the heavy lift vessels that are used Predominantly for installing the foundations, whether they be jackets or monopiled, and in the order of thousands and thousands of tons. The turbine installation vessels, where the lifts are more modest, um, you know, maybe a few hundred tons for um, tower sections and, and blades and nacelles. What has increased is the nacelle height above mean sea level. So the industry has had to build vessels with. Much bigger jib lengths on the crane so that they can lift these, they can lift these, these key components much higher now to erect the turbines.
0: Sometimes, when you only have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail.
1: And that has, until now, been true of the offshore insulation industry.
2: The easiest way to um, to install a pile is to hammer it, um, whether it be on land or, or offshore, and um, it, it stands true of small piles, jacket piles, which are typically um, jacket piles in the order of two and a half to three and a half meters diameter, and monopiles, as, as as we've said, of um, in the early days, where three or four meters. The easiest way and the quickest way to install a monopile in certain ground conditions is to hammer it into the seabed. And um, especially working offshore where you're working with tides and weather windows and you're trying to string together a program that doesn't doesn't relate into years. You're, you're, you're trying to basically install all your, your foundations and your cable routes within 12 months, for example. The quickest way to do that is, is hammering foundations. So the, the first choice for, for, for developers are to make sure that the, the geology is, um, is, is, is suitable for hammering foundations.
0: But not every problem is a nail. Sometimes a hammer just won't do
2: the job. However, what we've noticed really is all of those easy locations, geologically speaking, have been used up over the years. And now as we we get into deeper water, the the problem is twofold. There are some locations that can't be hammered, for example, outcropping rock, but also we're sort of at the limits now of um, what's capable from a hammer design point of view. So the size of these hammers, Um, and the energy required, and then the resulting noise and vibration that these hammers create uh, does produce issues in terms of environmental issues, um, marine mammals, um, you know, those kinds of things.
1: If a hammer won't cut it, perhaps a drill will? That has been another traditional tool in the offshore sector. In this approach, a drill is pushed down through the seabed from above. The material extracted from the hole is pumped out onto the vessel deck or onto a barge. Peter has been part of a team working to develop a new way of installing these huge foundations at pace with a minimal amount of risky work needed on deck.
0: It draws on techniques used in the tunnelling industry. There, tunnel boring machines, or TBMs, use a revolving disc of sharp teeth to tear through rock and soil, carrying the spoil away on conveyors. The vertical boring machine, or VBM, turns a TBM on its cutting head.
2: It's called the VBM because most people can relate to what a tunnel boring machine is. A tunnel boring machine has a big, rota- uh, a big rotary disc on the front with all the cutters. And it has a means of jacking itself um, through the ground to increase the load on the cutters, and it's the load on the cutters that do all the cutting and then all the waste material is removed by conveyors. Now, we can do all of that offshore, but the problem is, um, as I mentioned earlier, the water depth and the fact that gravity is working against us. We can't use conveyors, and we've got to lift the material from the bottom of the hole. so it's, it's sort of shaft sinking rather than tunneling. And the way we do that is basically the VBM is a hybrid, of two basic types of machine, the tunnel boring machine. So we have the big rotating disc um, to do all the cutting, but we're also using very large capacity dredge pumps that are typically used in the sort of um, near shore environment for for dredging. The VBM is um, an amalgamation of those two machine types. So we're able to not only cut different strengths of soil and rock, um, but then we're able to um, remove that, that volume of material very, very quickly in a slurry form so that the slurry then can be, can be treated on surface to separate the seawater from the, from the solids.
0: The VBM can chew through rock that a hammer simply can't handle.
2: You, you can hammer into weak rock. And so you can probably, you can hammer into rock with a a UCS of maybe sort of 20, 30 MPa. But above that, really, you you have to to drill the rock.
1: That's uniaxial compression strength and megapascals, in case you're wondering.
0: And it can be deployed without the constant insertion of new drill sections.
2: In fact, we don't have to bring it back to depth. We can move on to the next location. So we can go around the clock face in terms of... um, if there's maybe a jacket with three or four piles, and um, this is a much much more productive way of working offshore, because we don't have all the limitations of having to assemble the equipment offshore, and these operations are typically weather limited, so they've got there's a there's a limiting sea state or a limiting current or. Um, uh, wind limits in terms of the assembly so that's the main the main deployment um, benefit of the VBM is the fact that it's a single piece of equipment you plug you play you go on to the next location so if you want to reduce um, installation time offshore the most effective way of doing that is to operate multiple drills in parallel so um, on a um, four-legged jacket um, we can operate three, three or four drills in parallel. And that means that we're reducing them, the cycle time, if you like, them, the, the number of days per location. So this is, this is a way of speeding up the installation time as well.
1: Tools like VBM promise to bring a new, almost industrial approach to offshore wind turbine installation. Like robots working on an assembly line, multiple VBMs will be able to work together, speeding the pace of drilling.
0: But when it comes time to install the monopile itself, how can the crews of lift vessels ensure that they are perfectly positioning these huge structures? The traditional approach explains Sjord Buta, product owner vision technology with Fugro, is much like that used on land.
1: They would use total stations, or would approach the structure to take measurements. That allows for accurate positioning, but introduces delay and risk
5: delaying in in the procedure, delaying in the operational time will make uh, for longer projects and therefore also more expensive projects. So that's where we thought that uh, a camera system to take remote measurements, so without physical intervention of of a surveyor, would be a, a really good step forward. By using
0: vision technology for positioning, monopile installation vessel crews can monitor and adjust the position of the foundations as they work. It's almost as simple as guiding a nail into the wall.
5: Before you hammer in that nail too far, uh, you have some time to correct for the, uh, yeah, the actual orientation or position.
1: The technology makes use of two cameras mounted on the ship to precisely measure the monopile's position and angle.
5: In the case of uh, a monopile installation, there are two cameras that are on the vessel. So they are typically attached to the railing, for example, somewhere at a, at a safe distance approximately 12, 15 meters from the, uh, the actual operation where the, the monopile is being hammered down uh, and into a, a 90 degree angle, because it's important that we get two perspectives of that pile so we can take the, uh, the exact measurements of, uh, of that monopile. There are some typical uh, limits that, that are set by our clients. And I think the most critical ones for a monopile are the heading of the monopile. So even though it's, it's a, a tubular well, object, Um, there is still a heading that is important. And that mostly has to do with the cables running in to that monopile. So it is important for the client that that tubular object is still oriented with the right north or the right position towards north. The other one is inclination. And inclination is important because, well, we're dealing with quite long foundation elements. So a monopile can be, I think, already up to 110, 120 meters, if you're talking about the largest of of monopiles. Uh, so, so a small deflection, a small inclination of the pile, uh, for example, already 0. 0.25 degrees, could mean 15 centimetres at the top of that monopile. And obviously there's a huge structure being placed on top of that foundation.
1: One vision technology tool, launched five years ago, is designed around these requirements.
5: Inclinocam really was developed with monopile insulation in mind. So, so really, I, I would say it's, it's a dedicated tool to the offshore wind industry and making sure that we, we can accelerate installation schedules and, and help our clients to be more successful in, in the installation campaigns. If you go back in time, uh, so that's that's about that four or five year time period, a survey would, would need to ask the hammer operator or the, the installation contractor to stop the piling and take a measurement. Now with Inclinocam, because we can actually see the monopile also during the piling operation itself. And we can continuously monitor that pile during the piling operation itself. The operation doesn't have to be stopped. Uh, No one needs to go near. Uh, There is no physical tools required. Uh, So so that's really the the efficiency, the power that that Inclinocam introduced. Comparing to to that that classic way of of monitoring and measuring the the monopile inclination, uh, Inclinocam is saving about 30 minutes to 45 minutes, depending on the type of operation that is run on the, uh, on the vessel. So that's quite a significant uh, time saving, especially if you look at the size of some of these monopiles or, and, and wind farms, where more than 150 may be installed in, in a single campaign. So uh, saving about an hour, 45 minutes per monopile, results in quite a significant schedule uh, saving.
0: Monopiles are a relatively simple shape, a single tube of steel. But vision technology can also be used for much more complex structures, like those three or four-legged jackets.
5: It uses the same cameras. It pretty much uses the same principle uh, with respect to calibration and, and quality control, but then uses augmented reality. In, instead of observing the monopole and tracking, tracking the monopile, we, we drag in a, a virtual model into the video stream and we align that virtual model with the real-world model. And that way, we get the input on position uh, and orientation.
1: The virtual model is combined with a video stream, creating an augmented reality feed that can be used on ship.
5: That model is is only used by the surveyor. The output, however, can be shared with, well, the crane driver again, Uh, could be shared with uh, the vessel uh, captain or the bridge, anyone that is in in control of positioning the vessel uh, and and needs to have a, a good understanding of of where that jacket currently is.
0: And the same approach can be taken below the waves on an ROV, or Remotely Operated Vehicle. When floating arrays are installed, they're anchored into the seabed. These anchors need to be carefully positioned to ensure they're securely engaged with the seabed.
5: With quick vision, or, or, or the camera technology that we use for anchor installation, it definitely is time-saving by not needing to install and remove these sensors. But also having an always live or continuous data stream coming in. So we always are fully aware on the exact location of the anchor and the exact orientation of the, of the anchor. And we're doing this by pattern tracking technology. So almost compare it to observing a QR code through your phone camera. Uh, we have a special developed code, a pattern, that we observe through a camera on the ROV. And by observing that pattern, we get all the spatial information that we, we need to have for that uh, successful installation campaign.
0: Those QR code style tags aren't just being added to anchors. One of the latest innovations in the technology uses them at the top of turbine towers to allow for the precise positioning of the turbine's working components.
5: Quick vision, which is that pattern tracking camera technology I was just talking about, We actually found a new application for that as well in the offshore wind space. So obviously, once the foundation has been placed and the offshore wind tower is put on, you at some point need to put on that generator as well. So that's the actual wind turbine. And then the blades will follow. The positioning of that generator uh, or or RNA, uh, rotor nacelle assembly, uh, uh, it's called, uh, needs accurate positioning, so we've recently completed or, or are currently completing a project with uh, with a client of ours that is uh, using quite a novel way of installing these RNAs on the offshore wind foundation by making use of their very large uh, heavy lifting vessel. So they preassemble that generator with blades on on their deck and they lift that whole assembly on top of the tower. And obviously that needs positioning as well, because you need to get a visual on where this generator with blades of maybe up to 60 meters in, in length is going to be with respect to the tower, because yeah, you're dealing with very expensive equipment. So our thoughts there were, were to support them with a camera that is mounted downward looking in the generator and using a, a similar QR code as we would use for the subsea installation of anchors, for example, in the tower foundation. So that gives us a, a real-time uh, visual on where exactly that generator with the blades is with respect to the tower, and that in its turn helps the crane driver and and the whole team of of our client to be sure that they are actually positioning the whole assembly with the uh, required accuracy and and reducing the risk of that operation quite significantly. So it's 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 giving them that real-time data to base their decisions on and accelerate that schedule of installation, uh, while at the same time de-risking it.
0: Developing these systems takes a long and careful process of research and development to give the accurate results offshore contractors need. But the payoff is a much improved project schedule. Crane operators, ship captains and deck crews can now monitor foundation positions as they work, without stopping for a surveyor to take measurements.
1: And one day soon, rather than having a highly-skilled surveyor on every heavy lift vessel able to work on just one project at a time, contractors may be able to make use of specialists working remotely. Those surveyors will be working 24-7 from remote operations around the globe.
5: So so the moment you can connect these cameras to to your surveying computer, uh, you could be virtually anywhere on the vessel. It can be the bridge, it can be a dedicated surveying container. You could even be sharing the screen to the crane driver, the hammer operator, the outrig operator, whoever is interested in in that data. It's now all digital and continuously flowing in. So it's much easier to have the people at the right location. So so we deliver this this expertise or this technology on board of these these vessels to assist that client in in the installation work. So, So we are looking into making that surveying activity within Klinocam as something that we can do remotely and we've already run uh, successful trials where a remote surveyor from one of the ROCs the remote operation centers is actually logging in from that location that remote location onto the survey machine the computer on, on the vessel and take control of the operation so so we're definitely now at the phase where i think hybrid Scenarios are possible where there will be physical surveyors with reduced number on the vessel. And we have a, a remote surveyor supporting or actively controlling the uh, the, the InclinoCam software and, and helping the client to get insight in, in that operation.
0: Tools like this require masses of data in order to achieve the positioning wind farm developers demand. But this is just one monopile. How do you bring the same centimetre precise operation to an entire proposed wind farm development? How do you analyse the seabed to ensure the correct foundation or anchor is used for each turbine?
1: And how do you present the terabytes of data needed for these calculations in a way that can be used by anyone involved in operation from anywhere in the world?
0: That's the problem Jason Smith and Kat Rovang have been working on.
1: Jason is a global director, geodata analysis and geoconsulting at ViewGrow. As he explains, the variable seabed conditions seen on large wind farms can be planned for, but that does not mean contractors will face no surprises. Best made plans can change,
3: uh, and that really, uh, that really depends on what they find uh, out in the field. So, in some cases, they will come across a shipwreck that, that was not documented uh, where they want to put a wind turbine. Well, obviously, you can't do that. That's protected. So what do you do? Well, then you know the 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 people are a little looking at the data talks to the surveyor and say, okay, well, we need to we need to make some modifications in the field. we We need to uh, think on our feet and we need to move. um we need to collect some data elsewhere and see if we can clear that location. Or you may find, um, you know, environmentally sensitive areas, uh, corals, rock, outcrops or in the subsurface, you might find boulders, faulting, for example. A lot of these things you just don't know until you get in the field uh, because the the field data that the collection that we that we that we collect for these sites are sub meter. And, and there's no other existing information, uh, particularly in the subsurface uh, in, in the shallow waters that will provide that information anywhere the the asset is going to touch the ground, um, whether it's um, a fixed wind farm structure or a floating structure where you're talking about anchors. You need to make sure that that area that uh, that embeds itself into the ground is clear of obstacles uh, and environmental sensitive uh, areas and historically uh, sensitive areas. So should you find something um, that's a no-go for for various reasons, then you need to um, choose another location. And that obviously has a pretty significant impact on the design of a, of a field and the length of cable and inter-array cables, etc. So there is a, there's a bit of a domino effect there. Um, but the, the more data you collect in the field, the more options you have uh, onshore.
1: That data can be collected in the field from a range of specialist sensors. Other information can be collected from space or using aerial surveyor techniques. And there is a vast, but hard to make sense of archive of data that companies and governments have collected.
3: What we find is, um, historically, there's a there's a wealth of information that uh, that companies have uh, that they've collected over the years, but it's in different places. It's not in a, in a, a digital format. It's not retrievable. It's not uh, accessible. it's not integrated. And they sometimes, uh, you know, over the years, people change jobs and retire, et cetera. And um, that, that knowledge is, is lost. So, and, and when you, you know, digitalize your, your historical information, it's always there available to you and it's discoverable. So if you have existing information and a site, you would always want to go and look at that information first and see what you have. It's, uh, it's still uh, relevant, still useful, depending on the age of it, y- you use it as a starting point, but you still may need to go out and collect some additional, uh, uh, additional modern um, data. but It's always a great place to start.
0: Fugro has developed platforms that allow contractors to make sense of this data. The product is known as Virgio. It's a secure web-based application that brings together all of the data the sector needs in an easy-to-use way.
3: We're collecting a million, a million times more geodata uh, compared to, to 25 years ago. So it's a massive amount of, uh, of information that we have to digest um, as project stakeholders. One of these Virgio sites contains both historical and, and near real-time data from the field, often exceed 30 terabytes. And you, and you, can, <laughs> you can appreciate the challenge of trying to make informed decisions quickly. Because we're presenting the information to um, the, the project stakeholders, they can look at sub-bottom conditions, they can look at seafloor conditions, they can look at water depth conditions across their array and get a, and get a good uh, feel for what the, the soil profile is going to be uh, at, each, um, at each anchor or at each uh, turbine location. You may have a complete uh, fine-grained clay profile to to 30 meters, uh, and then uh, to the to the north, uh, a kilometer or two, at another turbine. You may have sand, and, and that has a big impact to uh, the design of the uh, of the turbine or or the anchor. So, um, understanding these um, these ground conditions from the geodata that we're collecting in near real time is very important because it allows them to, um, to quickly understand what the impact's going to be to their foundations.
1: Not so long ago, when geo-specialists were working on offshore projects, they would need to go out with the vessel, take their measurements and store these on a hard drive. No one not on the vessel would be able to access that data until those hard drives were taken back to land and their contents uploaded.
0: And the reverse was equally true. With slow internet connection, those working on vessels would spend a lot of time looking at slowly filling download progress bars when they want to be looking at data.
4: If you try to throw that level of data at the system and then you've got a user um, trying to access it from a vessel where they have low connectivity or in in an office somewhere or maybe at home, they don't want to sit there for three minutes waiting on the data
1: to render. Kat is a senior geoscientist and GIS analyst at Viewgro. She's been working on ways to disseminate and present this data. With offices and customers around the world, the company has needed to create a robust cloud-based solution, working with some of the biggest names in cloud software and GIS applications.
0: The Virgio platform uses Amazon Web Services to make data available around the world. It is built on top of Esri, a powerful mapping and geospatial service that is used routinely in the GIS sector.
4: I would say even from their perspective, they're leaders in the technology, but us being the domain experts, we still need help from them. And then they learn so much from us on because they've never dealt with centimeters data or the, the level of um, precision that we get with our data and what we do with it um, at different stages of of kind of the pipeline of data is very it's very unique, very unique to, yeah. to FIGRO in the industry. In one development, you know, we might, we have this initial survey plan and we do a first pass that's, I would say, more of recon level, and then we come back and do more detailed survey. But you could end up with generations and generations of survey uh, over the span of a, a few years.
0: Traditionally, data like this is presented one report at a time. When you're dealing with multiple sensing technologies, generating data over repeated visits to the same site, or even live along with historical data over sites that may measure hundreds of square miles, that's a lot of PDFs.
4: So then all of a sudden you're you're dealing with generations of survey and it's how do you, you really can't orient that just from the time domain or, you know, we collected this survey in the fall and of this year, and it's all of that gets baked into the reporting. And so if you were to navigate that from a report level, you're just seeing one piece of the puzzle. You're not seeing uh, the data in the context of which it was collected, and the data in the context of the now.
1: The system CAT has helped to develop cuts through that process and allows stakeholders to put it in context.
4: It definitely allows us to be a lot more agile with our data and, and get to it faster. I think people a lot, uh, a lot of people underestimate how much time goes into just finding a piece of data. So if you're able to just go to one website and know, I need to find uh, the geotechnical information associated with this part of the development that was collected, or it was this type of uh, location that was collected, you know, a year and a half ago or two years ago, it came from geos and engineers dealing with massive amounts of data and so it's how can we bring this together in a space that we can all collaborate easier so when you uh, enable the platform with the cloud there's a level of scalability that can be enabled
0: that allows for more efficient collaboration it also removes points of weakness from the system offices no longer need to rely on servers on their own premises on-prem servers in the jargon but can access the same data from anywhere in the world.
4: It's amazing to see um, people from all over the world being able to access such a huge pile of data. <laughs> you want to minimize the amount of time that 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 data or that um that or that stream of data is, is kept in a local sense or processed in a local sense and then immediately funnel it up to the cloud so that more people can access it and more people it can be you know sent to different parts of the world.
1: The data used by the service is collected by experts in the field, analyzed and cleaned before being ingested by Virgio. That allows for quality control and validation. It can be accessed through the web map interface, but it can also be used to generate the reports needed by planners and regulators. They can then use the web interface to complete their work.
4: As we prepare all of the information in a hard copy deliverable sense, the platform then also has the visual component of everything and the spatial component from the maps. And then we've opened access up to the system to, to BOEM. BOEM is the, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. As we prepare all this information for our clients, they ultimately have to communicate that to the government and with several inter-government agencies that specialize in other domains within the reg- regulatory space.
0: Platforms like Virgio allow wind farm developers to work with offshore construction companies, geo specialists, regulators and other stakeholders to plan the layout of wind farms. Near real-time access to geodata provides clarity on site conditions, so field decisions are made quickly and Data Collected supports the most cost-effective layout and foundation or anchoring solution for each turbine. They can use physical tools like VBMs to drill sockets for multiple foundations at the same time in ground conditions that aren't suitable for hammers and without the on-deck assembly needed for the top-drive drill systems.
1: And they can monitor the installation of monopiles, anchors and jackets with perfect precision while they work.
0: If we are to avoid the catastrophic consequences of uncontrolled global warming, we must, over the next decade, install an unprecedented number of offshore wind turbines.
1: In their scale and number, these turbines will push the limits of every industry they touch. They will keep entire fleets of vessels busy and demand a level of geoanalysis never seen before. But with tools
0: like these, offshore contractors will be able to work efficiently and effectively as they go about their planet-saving mission. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Ryan Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the man who provides real-time, global analysis of everything we do is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Fugro. And thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media on Twitter, LinkedIn, and now Instagram. The Engineering Matters and Reby Media team have been working on a new podcast series in partnership with HS2. How to Build a Railway is a 12-part podcast series exploring the story behind the construction of the UK's new high-speed rail line. It's now available on all podcast apps. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk.